This podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Welcome to PX33 today. We're speaking with Gahana Wattie and Jane Keddy from Hanson Partnership. Gahana is an urban designer with a solid understanding of built form and appreciation for viable, sustainable and pedestrian-oriented cities. Gahana works predominantly in the urban infill, brownfill and grainfill uh, areas of Melbourne. Jane Keddy is a strategic planner who works across Hanson's planning, urban design and landscape architecture teams with a particular expertise in regional planning and community engagement. Now, we don't often interview more than one person at a time, so this is a real treat today. So welcome to the both of you. Hello. Oh, uh, and welcome, Pete. Sorry, I yes, didn't even uh, introduce you. Hello, Jess. Our last, our last interview for the year. PX33, very exciting. Uh, listeners, please, apolog- uh, we apologise for the background noise. There's a lot of construction activity. Um, now, uh, Jane and Gahana, can you, one at a time, can you tell us a little bit about your path with your careers? Uh, sure. Uh, so I came into planning relatively late. Um, I spent um, quite a lot of my 20s, um, I guess, travelling and doing various other things and got to a point where um, I felt like uh, I wanted something a bit more concrete and a bit more interesting and, I, and I'm probably one of those kind of accidental planners. So um, I went back to uni to do my... Uh, to do my master's. Um, I originally uh, have, had a degree in art history um, and just ended up uh, finding planning really interesting. Uh, I think the grey areas um, are really uh, uh, what attracts me um, to planning and I think also I grew up um, with a, an architect uh, for a mother so I've always had a kind of a, an under appreciation of design and that relationship between design and planning. So. Now, now Jane your, your mother is uh, quite a, in, has some prominence in the planning world in Victoria. She does. And uh, she's on the VCAT, the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal so she hears planning disputes. That's correct and so she's also planning panels as well. Planning panels. So yeah. you would have grown up in a household of planning talk? Uh Yes and no. Uh, I grew up very much uh, with discussions around design. Um, she had an architectural practice, so I grew up, you know, colouring in, colouring in architectural plans uh, under the table when I was a kid. Um, uh, so the, the the idea of design and, and spaces has always been, uh, I guess, part of my uh, my history, um, but not so much the kind of technical planning uh, planning issues. And Gohana, tell us about your, your career path. I've, um, similar to Jane, stumbled into planning and urban design almost accidentally. Uh, I studied architecture at university, not knowing really fully what it entails back then. Um, it started off as a true passion that I do enjoy drawing and using my hands to create uh, graphic illustrations. Um, so I thought, look, architecture seems to be a natural progression uh, as a career. Um, but I remember during my university projects, there's always a, uh, a pull or a greater interest in the bigger picture mm. or macro planning. And, and as background, you grew up in Indonesia and you studied in Singapore and uh, you moved to Australia. So you've got a lot of cultural influences on your development. That's right. Um, it's also quite an interesting contrasts uh, coming from Indonesia, which is quite chaotic in its uh, superficial appearance. It is 
a city that I always consider as a, a organized chaos because things will just find its natural way of sorting things out. Um, and then, of course, Singapore is, in contrast, is highly regimented. And you may even say nothing accidents, accidental happened in Singapore. Everything's planned. Um, and coming to Melbourne, it seems to be somewhere in between the two, somewhere in between the unplanned, which is what our landscape context tend to be uh, perceived at, and highly planned, which is what our urban areas is perceived at. Now, we just want to start on um, reflecting on the role of urban design in the industry. Um, what do you see now that you didn't see five years ago? Five years ago, um, I would see there are, there seems to be more emphasis on design and quality of design. Um, this is just me speaking personally, having worked or having started my career in urban design. There seems to be a lot more freedom in uh, design expression. There's a lot more ambiguity in how we phrase our design terminology. But lately, um, there seems to be a lot more emphasis and some may say rigor in how design is measured or good design, how is it measured? And sometimes that becomes quite an interesting conundrum. How do you measure something that's subjective? That seems to be a recent shift and phenomenon that I observe uh, as an urban designer. And Jane, what, what do you know now that you didn't know five years ago? Oh. I, I, think, I think one of the really interesting, uh, I think, maybe things that I appreciate more now than I did five years ago is uh, the, the role and the importance of uh, getting a local community on board in terms of um, how a place will evolve um, and what that means in terms of the design. I think there's a really interesting, uh, I guess, tension at the moment between the kind of the broader strategic objectives of planning um, and how that's communicated um, in terms of what the, the local residents of an area see and understand uh, in terms of their own neighbourhoods uh, and also how that might then, um, I guess, influence the planning controls and I think there is a real disconnect at the moment between what the planning scheme says and does and what the kind of local community's expectation of, of what the kind of outcomes are going to be. Would you say as well that the community these days is a lot more educated in planning and design and in that way I guess they can have a, a really um, prominent role in, in assisting us as professionals in the urban design field? Uh, Yes and no. I think that I think that there is um, there is significant potential for um, communities to have a really meaningful role in terms of what the design outcomes are for a particular place. But I do think that there's perhaps um, improvements that could be made in terms of how um, we communicate what we're doing with residents um, in terms of the kind of their understanding of the parameters that we're asking them to uh, I guess provide us input of and so that it's actually framed so that we can get some really meaningful input. I think there's a kind of there's a bit of a missing piece of the discussion you have these kind of very localized conversations that don't necessarily um, relate to the broader strategic objectives and that can then lead to some tension and I think that that there's a there's a kind of I guess a, a secondary tension between the way uh, 
the whole planning system within Victoria is is framed where uh, most people's engagement with the process is, as uh, is, is you guys would be aware, very much at kind of the adversarial kind of single dwelling um, kind of part of the process mm. as opposed to engagement at that kind of strategic mm. level. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Jane, to just to be cynical, <laughs> a lot of P, uh, community consultation processes are done by government agencies when they've already made up their mind. Uh, th th I'm being cynical about that that a lot of it is just a PR exercise to show that we've done community consultation. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that, there's, I think that there's a lot of consultation that happens now is happening because you need to do consultation as opposed to you're wanting to meaningfully engage with that community and give them those opportunities to That must be hard participate. for the practitioners involved. I mean, I know someone who's done that and she was sort of consulting people after the decisions have been made. And... It's a sort of hollowness in the whole, the whole cynical approach. I think. I don't think it's a. I don't think that's a good outcome for no. for anyone. No. Now, now the concept of urban design being a separate entity. Um, can we just talk to that in terms of the plan? You know, planning, architecture, urban design. Is there a blurring? Do you think? I think urban design is anti-silo, as a practice. Um, some may disagree, but um, I think the fundamental fact that urban design doesn't have an institutional body in Australia shows that there is no one box that you can put us into. We, even in our office at Hanson, there are urban designers who come from planning, who come from landscape architecture, who come from architecture, or like Jane, art history. So I think that is a fundamental um, key factor as an urban designer, that there is no one practice or no one discipline that um, should be the basis for this because urban design is about city form, city building, and the city is a highly complex object and yeah, complex I, I, matter. I think I think one of the you know one of the things that is really interesting about urban design is that it encompasses such a broad scale from the kind of the macro side kind of strategic design, which is probably where I see it, right down to the kind of individual kind of building design review, which perhaps someone with an architectural background is more suited to. So it's such a it's such a broad, I guess, area uh, of, of of practice that that I that I think that it doesn't it shouldn't be siloed. I, I, I think that there perhaps is some increasing, I guess, attempts to, to silo um, urban design as a, as a particular, um, I guess, profession and to separate it from things like planning. I, personally, I think that that's problematic on a number of levels, um, trying to take design, urban design as kind of this thing that sits in isolation and doesn't necessarily relate to the planning context, the broader strategic objectives. Yeah, it needs um, to be integrated, doesn't it? Yeah, I think most importantly, urban designers need to be influencer. We, we need to speak multiple languages professional-wise. We need to be able to converse with architects and talk in their language. We need to understand planning language and planning framework to actually really meaningfully integrate that piece of architecture within its context. And we need to be able to communicate clearly with local residents Correct. in terms of what, what, that, what that kind of design means and how design can help them actually achieve what That's right. they want to see um, within, within their local communities. Yeah. Jane, your art history background, does that inform, does that give you the long view of what you're doing now? 
Uh, I don't know if that I don't know if that gives me the long view. I think it's. I mean, I think it gives you some of the basic fundamentals. I mean, I, I'm not sure what degrees are like these days, but you know, when when I did my degree, I finished it by you know, looking at Noli's map of Rome and how uh, the city had evolved from, from then to now. So, you know, and looking at Palladian villas. So it was a kind of a, a, a quite a broad education in those kind of underpinnings. So I guess that must influence um, my understanding, but I don't know whether that's necessarily influenced my kind of long-term views. Just moving into international reflections. So, Gahana, coming from overseas and now living in Australia, what has shaped your views of Australian cities? Someone used to tell me never tell or never tell a story about their own city to their own people, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which I strongly believe because um, not having not grown up here or um, experienced my childhood here, I completely perceived the city Um, from almost a professional level. Um, And what I think is interesting is finding the contrast between the city I grew up in, my understanding of how a city functions, and Australian city, I think is a more meaningful (laughs) discussion this morning. Um, To some degree, like I mentioned earlier, uh, Australian cities have this perception that we are over planning um, there is a very limited window for spontaneity, for opportunistic response that can be grassroots or can be actually um, a bottom-down uh, initiative. While in Indonesia, government plays a very small role in city planning, or they look like they don't do much. Maybe they do, but the community doesn't seem to perceive that way. So that actually, to some degree, empowered the community to do something themselves and not rely on the government agency to tell them this is what the city is doing. So from that, there's a lot of opportunistic um, entrepreneurial responses. There's opportunistic um, city planning responses. So it's bottom up rather than top down. Precisely, yes. And given the number of population we have in comparison to the government agencies, there seems to be a critical mass of bottom down, bottom up movement that influences city shaping in Indonesia. And um, to, to both of you, Hanson, Hanson Partnership does a lot of work in Asia. You've got an office yes. in Vietnam. What do you think uh, the East can teach the West in terms of evolving cities? Flexibility. I think that is something that ensures survival to some degree, being able to be agile in decision making and changing of mindset and paradigm. When we work in Vietnam, there's always this um, notion that time is flexible. We work in a rubber band time frame because you just let the process take its place. What's your thoughts on that, Jane? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I'm, I'm laughing at the, at the flexible time frame because uh, there's obviously very different work practices over there. But I, I would agree um, strongly with Gahana. I think that, that the flexibility and the, uh, I guess, the ability... Um, for cities to evolve um, as, you know, they have quite dramatic changes that occur in in quite short periods of time um, in in a lot of those cities. But uh, I think one of the things that is interesting is that that one of the things that we can teach them too is that there's... 
there's a kind of there's a theory and practice um, I, that I've found in in um, and particularly in Vietnam where we, we do a lot of work where there's in practice there's this great kind of flexibility and opportunism and kind of stuff just happens but in theory they're planning things to the nth degree they do a you know a they they do their plans at kind of scale. So there's one to ten thousand plan, and then yeah. there's one to five thousand yeah. plan, and then one there's to one to two fifty plan. So they they kind of master plan stuff to the kind of nth degree. And one of the things that that we've um, you know been working with a lot of our Vietnamese partners on is is this idea that we have in our system that you have to allow some flexibility in order to for the market to actually deliver something that's going to work mm. for them as well. Um, Do you think that's actually a response because of the chaotic nature of how their city is functioning, that they feel there is a need to rigidly plan their city up to 1 to 50 scale? Um, like public realm is designed at 1 to 250 scale and master plan stage. To us, that is completely premature. But to them, it is a, it's almost like a reaction to things is uncontrollable here. So we need to ensure that what we're delivering or what we are envisioning can be built. But I haven't seen any of that being built. Do you think um, architects and urban designers in the mm. East, do they have a more influential role in city building? Landscape architecture is a very young profession yeah. in the East. I was just in Bangkok uh, a month ago for a conference and it was really refreshing that young professionals being educated overseas, coming home and applying their skills to its contextual, um, in, its, in its context. But what I find is interesting, landscape architecture, or urban design to some degree, has this really positive and optimistic way of looking at the world. We have to. If we are not positive people, we can't plan for better places. Mm. The, the aim, Yes, mm. the aim always have to be positive. The process may be challenging, but um, the intent is always good. And that is highly evident in Asian context because the problems are real, the problems are visible, and the problems are demanding quick decision-making process. And that forced the designers to be highly participatory in their decision-making. They engage with stakeholders, not just the community, but also investors. They try to influence developers who are their um, clients to be the patron of the arts, so to speak. So developers there are not a separate entity that's set to the side. Rather, they are not being used, but they are convinced that their products are better uh, perceived, better used if it Co-opted. is of high quality. Co-opted. Co-opted, yeah, sure. Em- empowered to, empowered. to, to see, to see the, the role that perhaps they can play in the, in the kind of bigger picture. Yes, yes. To be proud of what they're doing. Yes, absolutely. And can we talk a little bit about superstition? Uh, this is our 33rd My interview. favourite topic. Yes, uh, <laughs> and, and superstition in terms of, I mean, it's, it's an odd topic. We don't have it in the West here, I don't think, so much. But in Asian... You just said that you were superstitious. You were. I'd also also suggest that, you know, the fact that we often leave the 13th floor out of buildings um, is is perhaps... (laughs) We do have a level of superstition. Uh, Well, uh, in terms of old things, Kahana, you know, like old places for, say, Indonesians have different 
uh, evoke different thoughts to, say, here in the West? Absolutely. Um, Indonesians have a very old um, tradition and culture. Um, with, we are a very established society, um, you know, with really diverse cultural backgrounds. And what is a common thread among them all is this superstition nature of how we inhabit space of um, you know, how you avoid spaces or buildings, particularly old buildings, um, because of the perception that if it is old means it, is, it has its memory or it has its history, and therefore it is someone else's history and we do not want to engage with that and we want to move on. So unfortunately in Indonesian context, a lot of colonial buildings have been demolished. Um, they're not particularly valued until recently, they don't see a cultural um, contribution to Indonesian history in that aspect because it always brings back a very painful memory for colonial. these people, mm. colonial mm. history. So for them, colonial buildings represent oppression mm. and therefore we would like to get rid of it. Um, well, in the West, for example, is quite the opposite. You have Flinders Street, you have um, the Parliament House, you have State Library. All of these are treated as monument and we valued heritage because they are a manifestation of memory, of a collective memory, of society memory. And I think that is a very contrasting notion of the two cultures. That, that comes, uh, brings on the next question. Buildings come and go but places evolve. That's probably not all true. Can you talk this idea of places evolving? Uh, look, I think I think that's a really interesting uh, conversation because the the fact is that cities are evolving all the time. Um, I think at the moment there's a there's an interesting tension between uh, our, what our planning system does and how it's set up and the ability for places to evolve over time. There's, and I think that 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 is problematic at the moment, both from the kind of individual building design right through to the to the kind of broader urban form of, of the city because we have these ideas um, and these kind of broad policy directions around adaptability and flexibility that are kind of embedded within our system. But the the reality is that if you get down to the kind of nitty gritty, when, when you know, someone comes in with a planning uh, application that that deals with, uh, for instance, kind of uh, adaptable housing forms that might have, uh, you know, a shell with some that, that allows that space to evolve over time, um, you know, for it might be a, a, a building that's designed for someone who might need a carer in the longer term, so the spaces are designed so that they can be flexible and they can evolve over time, you it comes up against a, a planning scheme that car parking. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't. I wasn't going to talk about car parking. Car parking absolutely is like incredibly important, and is you know I, I think everyone knows that it, it's fairly problematic at the moment, and that there does need to be a change. But even if you look at the new, uh, there's obviously there's the new apartment um, design standards, which have you know quite, uh, I guess strict things around kind of, you know, bedroom depths, etc. But what happens if you're not specifying bedrooms within a, within a building? Yeah, um, and, you know, that's at kind of one level of the scale. And then you look out at the kind of the subdivisions where we're getting, you know, smaller and smaller blocks within um, greenfield areas, which is, you know, 
the intention behind that in terms of increasing the density is really important, but what does that mean for the ability for those areas to change and evolve over time? Uh, it's, yeah. It, um, it's a question for, for all three of you, and that is uh, how do we rate how well city development is, is doing? And uh, you know, I'm frustrated with a lot of the uh, legacy issues haven't been dealt with, and how do we know the product that we contribute to is satisfactory? Asking the tough question. Question. Yes. Question <laughs> I think it. Yes. How, how do we how do we test our, uh, our professionalism? Well, I, I mean, I think I mean I, I think it's an it's a difficult question because I think as a profession we work across so many different scales and mm. in so many different and time frames uh, yeah exactly so yeah. I think you know for for some people uh the at working at the kind of you know the development approval stage if they see some really good innovative um buildings actually constructed then they're probably going to feel like they've made a, an excellent contribution for someone who's you know looking at kind of regional um regional scale planning I, I think you know I think we're generally heading in the right direction in terms of kind of what we're doing I think there's just some kind of really difficult issues that are you know hard to deal with and so there being kind of this disconnect between the kind of the broader aspirations and actually the kind of the nitty-gritty of the planning schemes isn't necessarily being being dealt with so we've got Lots of really great aspirations and our kind of intentions, I think, are really good. But how that filters down to the decisions on the ground and, the you know, what the, the planner in the local council is looking at when they're making a decision is, uh, is perhaps less well resolved at the moment. I may have to slightly disagree. Um, I feel we are in a more challenged position now because there seems to be that push of let's not consider anything that's subjective because subjective matter is influenced by cultural or personal or sex biases. And a lot of what we see that frustrates us now, there seems to be lack of soul of, or lack of identity in design. Things becoming looking the same mm. because it ticks the boxes and ticks and the boxes easy. and it's easy. And it's, that's actually that's actually I think a really interesting discussion because I think it it comes back to again how we're uh, talking to communities, how communities understand design, uh, how communities see our profession generally. Because at the end of the day, most people uh, in the community they'll look at a new building or they'll look at a new development and they'll make a decision based on what it looks like as to whether or not they like it. They're not, they're not caring whether, you know, the setback's 1.3 metres or no. 1.4 metres. They're looking at it going, those are pretty crappy materials. I don't really yeah. like that yes. building. Or, or you also get the, oh, that's a bit different, I don't like it. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, that it's, a really, uh, it's a really interesting discussion um, that needs to be had and that's, I, that's probably what I was alluding to in terms of, you know, the planning scheme doesn't really want us to deal with the kind of the look and feel of things. It wants us to deal with, you know, X metres setback and, and there's, a, there's an increasing trend towards that, but there's a disconnection between that and what local residents actually care about, which is how things kind of look and feel. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's a... So it's that creativity a, is being uh, compromised by the need to produce a standardised outcome? Yes, producing what is non-offensive product. Mm -hmm. 
yes. what's familiar. It's kind of rewarding that kind of mediocre design and not necessarily um, supporting and facilitating good design outcomes. Mm. Which is highly contradicting to every state policy that we have. Yeah. We want innovation. We want creative design. We want exemplary design. But they're all jargons for now. Definitely. And that kind of leads into um, this influence around politics as well. Um, what's been your experience in relation to the influence that politics have on urban design and planning? I think, I mean, I think it's incredibly strong. Uh, at the end of the day, most, uh, most work we do, um, uh, particularly in... Uh, I mean, I work primarily uh, with the public sector. Uh, the work we do needs to get adopted by a local council. Uh, the local council is, by its very nature, a political entity. It's their elected local representatives. So, uh, and that's that's why I think this idea of how you engage the community with discussions around design and how you empower them to understand what the broader objectives are and actually get them involved in making those decisions along the way is incredibly important because they will influence their councillors and the councillors will be making a political decision um, so it's it's it, you know you can't you can't underestimate I think the importance of, of politics at least in the public um, space it sounds so simple doesn't it but it's so difficult in reality oh, it is and very. I, I think we as planners and designers whether we want to accept it or not we are playing the political game because although politics may have a rather negative connotation, it's really, in the a, in a simplest terms, the act of influencing people. Yeah. It's about um, getting their buy-in into an idea or a change. And that's what we do every day, whether we like it or not. It's just about, have we embarked on the wrong path? Are we giving too much to the community that the outcome and the feedback that's received in the decision-making process is therefore flawed. So or, or not aligned with, the, not with aligned. the kind of strategic. Correct. So you end up with this yes. conflict between what the community has said they want and, and what then you what can is actually the strategic deliver. Direction is. Mm. Yes. Or are we not giving them enough um, opportunity to influence the process of decision-making and therefore there's this sense of frustration? But I think we all agree that we do not want a party politics, basically designing by committee, mm -hmm. where we lack focus, we don't have directions, and therefore we get nothing. It's what Jane called death by a thousand cuts, mm -hmm. where you just don't get anything in the end. And I think, unfortunately, I, I really think we may go into that direction mm -hmm. because we want to please everyone, and everyone wins and everyone loses. Uh, but I think that, again, that comes down to that, that broader engagement and that the, it's not just a matter of a single project dealing with it. I think it's it's interesting to me to see a lot of the dialogue out in, um, I guess, the media uh, is being led at the moment by architects. I don't see a lot of commentary on, um, I guess, planning and the role that planning and design have in terms of delivering spaces uh, in, in the media. I see lots of uh, comment commentary um, on urban form, etc., from, from architectural practitioners. And I see a lot of kind of planning news that relates to kind of negative things and people kind of reacting against something that they don't want to see, as opposed to, 
you know, broader discussions, you know, within the media about how, you know, design and planning can, um, I guess, influence places and change places for the better. Because at the end of the day, you know, if we're not, if our job is not to make places better, then, you know, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I'm not yeah. quite sure what we're doing. But Jen, do you think that's because of the nature of projects? You know, strategic and urbanism projects lifespan is over 20, 30 years, and our outputs or reports and implementation are not tangible. Mm. They are just words. Yeah, particularly like you said, for 30 years. Correct. The place might be completely different. That's right. Yeah. And while the architecture product products are tangible. Mm. Within five years, you see a tower rising up, and then there's something to react to. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, cities. Um, I mean, Jane, you mentioned uh, you know that our role is to make places better. Uh, that's just not just in the physical sense or the aesthetic. There's also cities are economic beasts, yeah. and uh, I don't think planners sometimes pay enough attention to the health, the economic health, and the economic vitality, and the evolving nature, and how how sometimes planning can be impediments to that? Yeah, I would, I would completely agree. I think, I think that, that the economic side of things, and I, I would say not, you know, not just the kind of making money, but that, that issue of employment is probably one of the critical issues that, that planners at the kind of strategic level will need to deal with over, over the next little while. Uh, you know, I think... There's so much focus um, in planning on, on housing, and I think housing's obviously a really important issue, but you could almost argue that we kind of almost need to flip that and we need to be talking about employment and jobs and those kind of areas and how, you know, employment clusters and kind of, you know, job centres can actually diversify. We've kind of and it gets back again to that idea of kind of adaptability and flexibility of spaces. But we, you know, our, you know, our zoning system basically kind of separates everything. But I don't know whether that's necessarily going to deliver that kind of economic outcomes that, when, that when you're talking. When I was a young planner, commute times was one of those sort of stats that was regularly thrown around, and I'm sure the commute times now are much higher, and that is eating away at people's lives. Oh, absolutely. I mean, PricewaterhouseCooper released a, a, a paper recently around, around the kind of productivity um, uh, in terms of people's kind of commuting times. And it's, I think it's, I mean, I think that's broadly acknowledged and understood, but the practicalities of how that actually happens on the ground is is one of the, is what I think is one of the key, kind of key challenges. There was another thing I was reading the other day that was, talking about how, you know, the, the balance between um, driving to work and catching public transport to work is actually better if you're in the outer suburbs than the inner, inner suburbs because it takes you more time in the inner suburbs to catch your public transport into work than to drive, mm. whereas the time differential from driving from the outer suburbs versus catching public transport is actually more, so you've got more incentive even though you've got worse services yeah. to catch it from the, you know, whereas the inner city and the kind of those areas, the commuting time is, is, is less if you, if you drive your car in. So, yeah. Song Bowden provides town planning services throughout Victoria. 
they are recognised within the industry for providing planning, advocacy and expert evidence in VCAT hearings. So give Dave Song or Dan Bowden a call to discuss your planning needs. Salt, traffic engineering and Victorian planning reports. So many planning policies seek to preserve the status quo, so talking about neighbourhood character and the like. Um, is this a good thing, do you think? Uh, look, I think it's I think it's a good thing in some scenarios, but I think in a lot of uh, a lot of cases it's quite problematic. Uh, we we've got these overarching objectives which are which are seeking to kind of I guess see a change in the kind of uh, built form that we're getting across most areas of, of the city. I think you know obviously in some areas there's there is a really particular or notable character, and that should definitely be protected. Um, I think a lot of areas there's capacity for change that's not um, out of character with the neighbourhood but the way it's being applied through the system um, is very much in a way of kind of discouraging anything that's a little bit different. Um, So I think it's there's a real tension between this kind of innovative and different kinds of design that we want to see within within our suburbs and the, the concept of neighbourhood character and how it's used. So neighbourhood character is being used to, and I'm thinking of a particular example where there's a, the, I guess, a prototype project on a on a corner block that meets all of the, you know, res code standards, etc., and it gets refused on the grounds of it's not in keeping with neighbourhood character, even though it's delivering, you know, all of the kind of broader strategic objectives... Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just that the kind of weighting that that is given, and the it's use so subjective too. The, and the use of discretion. You know, the window forms aren't the same. The roof yeah. forms the same. Yeah, which like do we want them to be the same? No. You know, I, I I don't I don't think we do. I think as long as you've kind of got your broad, it's not something that's sticking out like a sore thumb. Mm. Then. It, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't really be an issue. And I, I think our interpretation of neighbourhood character is very different as professionals compared to the community as well. The community just say, "Well, it's not the same as my house, therefore it doesn't fit the neighbourhood character." Yeah. But then, but then, shouldn't shouldn't the professionals making the decisions on that particular application be weighting that? And I think that's you know that's again part of a kind of a broader conversation about how empowered. Mm local planners are to actually kind of support and recognise good design. And the influence and, of politics. And, the, and the, role of, the role of ResCode and the fact that, you know, ResCode was actually designed for, to be a discretionary tool, mm. you know. It was designed to, to actually facilitate and support good design, to set those kind of minimum... It wasn't designed to be used to kind of constrain and... and refuse yeah. uh, what what's kind of good design outcomes. Get back to that topic that was raised before about planners leading the debate, leading the community debate, or or putting ideas forward. No? Gahana? Um, I find this neighbourhood character concept completely baffling because it seems to be applicable and pushed for some areas, very specific areas, i.e. the greyfields. But we don't see that much in the city. But I also think there's—I mean, there's there's a, there's this kind of inevitable flaw in the whole kind of neighbourhood character concept, mm-hmm. which is in most neighbourhoods you don't need a planning permit for a single dwelling, and so someone can demolish a house and build this gigantic kind of McMansion that that is totally out of character but with I think the kind of with the neighbourhood. 
and that's that's kind of not controlled by the planning system and then and then a, then a development that's actually delivering the broader strategic objectives around kind of you know uh, you know smaller dwellings or uh, you know increased densities are then caught up in this but kind of idea that they're not in keeping with character but the, the notion of character I think is appropriate the the character is appropriate because it's talking about a sense of place it's about context response to context yeah absolutely this is not about creating something out of thin air it is a natural response but why is it appropriate or important or critical in some areas like established neighborhoods and not in urban areas yeah. Um, Kohana, just going back a bit, you mentioned the expression greyfield. Yeah. Excuse my ignorance. Can you explain oh, I that? called it greenfield earlier. Greenfield, greenfield, greyfields. Grey <laughs> oh, guys, there are Which rainbow are fields out there. <laughs> uh, so greyfields are what the terminology we urban designers used for um, allotments or precincts that have uh, its land value sits higher than its built form values. A lot of our middle ring suburbs are that. The transitioning of the suburbs, if you like. Well, yeah, the increase of land value because of infrastructure delivery, about um, recent developments that's happening in the neighbourhood. So it is not worthwhile keeping the existing buildings because of the disparance in, in, in the valuation. So a lot of these grey fields are undergoing renewal or um, lots of uh, quite increased density in infill and lots of backlash because it is not the neighbourhood character. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's, you know, there's, a, there's a broader discussion around where and how we should prioritise neighbourhood character. And, it, it, again, I, I don't think this is a kind of a, a new, uh, a new uh, issue, but, you know, that, that, that this kind of where and how and who prioritises all of the different kind of, I guess, objectives that, that we have for this city, um, you know, do we prioritise increasing density or do we prioritise sense of place and how do we talk to the community about how those concepts fit together? Another quite interesting notion, learning from the grey fields, is that a lot of our assets, as, you know, typical people living in the city, is tied in to our land holding. That's my biggest investment, that's my biggest asset as someone who lives here. And most people do that. Yet, there's not a lot of incentives or ways and how we can actually capitalise on our asset. Well, in Asia, there's always this concept, if you, why would you live in a house if you can live and work and, you know, create more income and make your asset work harder for you? And that's the opportunistic um, mindset. And the city still doesn't do that. You know, we, we don't have Soho products. We don't have apartments that can be converted into something else. Mm -hmm. The greenfields absolutely doesn't do that, about being able to use their land. And these are migrants who live there. And they would like, to, I would think they would like to actually make their money work harder than just sitting there as a land. But we don't have that mechanism. <clears throat> just moving into urban design and talking about the city versus growth area, um, growth areas and the regions, there's some unease that urban design is most practised in the near city, so in the close to the CBD, but not much happens in the outer or um, the newer suburbs. Can you comment around this? Uh, look, I can't comment specifically on the kind of the newer suburbs and the greenfields, um, other than to say I, I think there's, there's 
potential issues in kind of rolling out large precincts with a kind of a similar model, Mm -hmm. um, which might not evolve over a a longer period of time. I work a lot in regional centres and I think that, you know, urban design is is just as important and that kind of, particularly, you know, how the public realm in regional places changes and evolves um, and how the public realm can be used to increase the attractiveness of a lot of these smaller regional towns. Um, so I think urban design is a, is a critical um, a critical part of how those those townships and regional centres will evolve over time. Are there any parallels between how we manage or perceive greenfield versus high-density residential in the CBD? I see there is a strong parallel between the two. Um, it's really a similar... Um, concept. One is sprawling, one is vertically sprawling. Um, But also the demography who lives in these places and who are buying these places. Um, I think we can accept that a lot of the migrants population are actually snapping up these properties and there's always a constant social question that will come with that. Is it a good idea about, you know, creating a concentration of them all in one place without actually doing anything about it? Is there a social infrastructure to actually engage with these people? Are they initiatives? Are we talking ghettos? Let's I don't think it's ghettos. Well, I think ghettos has... Word, but. I don't think ghettos is the, t- the word. I think it is about the perception and of are, ghettos. And, but are we also creating spaces that really meaningfully allow people who have come in, uh, who are perhaps new to the city, to actually have a really good... Uh, chance to, I guess, informally interact so that we can actually make the most of all of the kind of, you know, there's all the, um, I guess, studies around in terms of innovation and development and economics about the importance of kind of informal interactions and people actually having a chance to to meet and interact Mm -hmm. face-to-face. And I would question whether um, we're creating the kind of spaces in not necessarily in the CBD, but definitely in the kind of greenfields areas um, where that can occur and whether people have the time for that to occur when they live in those areas. A a tough question. What do you hope to achieve in the next five years? Gahana, first? Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) I think on a day-to-day basis. (laughs) Um, I probably have a couple of things I would like to explore more and I may not achieve it in five years, but really understanding, do improvement in public realm contribute to economic benefits of the city? We haven't seen any study or any demonstration of such study, case study. I know people are a bit cagey about, you know, the income they make out of their properties and the effect of improving public realms on, on their um, businesses. But I think that degree of transparency needs to happen somewhere um, for us to actually understand um, what are we doing? Does it actually work? Look, I I mean, I think I'm, you know, I've got to say I'm quite focused on my day-to-day at the moment. I've got a, you know, a a, a small child and and an almost full-time job. So um, I'm just, you know, trying to get through uh, what I'm doing. But I I do think that I'd really like to see, I guess, myself playing some role in terms of 
how design and planning are kind of intersect with the community. I think there's, you know, there really is a lot of interesting things going on in terms of community-led design, but I think it's really important that, that there's a kind of a broader conversation around kind of where the community-led part of planning and design processes fits with the kind of broader strategic directions. I think that's uh, an area I'm really interested in and I'd like to kind of explore that over the next little while. Mm-hmm. And what do both of you do outside of work? How do you re- refresh and relax? Uh, in all my spare time. Look, I mean, I, I, I still try and travel um, quite a lot. Um, so I, I think travel is probably a, a key one. I've, I've always travelled and I can, will continue hopefully the rest of my life to keep travelling um, you know I, I read a lot um, but to be honest most of my spare time at the moment is hanging out with my small person and yeah. going to local parks and that kind of thing. Yeah I, I, it is weird isn't it that we live in the most livable city and what we do in a spare time is to plan our escape yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I do the so same uh, I think that's the most exciting and rewarding component of our work is that when we have downtime, it is going out there get to and go and see explore what's other out places, there yeah, and get inspired. I think that's important. Keep getting inspired. Hmm. Well, thank you, Gohana. Thank you, Jane, and for a wonderful PX thirty three. And uh, apologies to everyone for for all the background noise. I think we've had everything today. We've got the um, the jackhammers. We've got planes. There was some beeping or reversing well, we going on. We before. had the handsome partnership helicopter arrive. But. <laughs> 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 Jess, it's been a terrific year for Planet Exchange. It has. We've, we've met some wonderful uh, subjects, very generous with their time. We've had our three-year anniversary. We've had our three-year anniversary. Yeah, very and, exciting. And uh, we, we also have very high hopes for 2018. So, listeners, happy Christmas and New Year from Planet Exchange. Jess? Thank you. 